Thank you, Skyline family, uh, whether you're here with us this morning in the auditorium or whether you're joining us streaming, it's, uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, so we are continuing in our series that we started last week. It's called Jesus and You, and uh, we're really all about um, finding out um, about who He is and really interacting with who He is. And, um, you know, the story of Jesus, uh, uh, it's told throughout the whole Bible, really. Um, the Old Testament um, tells why He needed to come and then predicted how He would come. And then when we get into the New Testament, we actually get into the, the Gospels and the story of what He did in His life and His death. Um, but all of it together tells one story. And um, so we will constantly want to be um, pulling from all of it, connecting it together so that we can make sense out of it. And uh, this morning, um, we're going to start with a video that kind of um, teaches us a little bit about how to do that. So uh, watch this video with me now. And so this is one of the main goals of the gospel, to show how Jesus is bringing the whole biblical story to its fulfillment. So that's why the gospel authors are constantly appealing to the Hebrew scriptures while telling the story of Jesus. Yeah, like when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Matthew reminds us that this was anticipated by the prophet Micah. And he directly quotes from Micah. Yeah, these direct quotes are really common. But more often, the gospel authors weave biblical phrases into the story without telling you, so you can discover it for yourself. Like when Jesus is baptized and God announces from the skies, you are my son, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Now, if you do some digging, you'll find that God's statement blends together phrases from three biblical texts to identify Jesus as the royal son of David, the seed of Abraham, and the servant who's going to suffer for the sins of his people. Whoa, that is subtle. Yes, and the gospel accounts do this on every page. Every book is constantly showing how all of the biblical stories about Abraham or Moses and David and all the prophets, all of it points forward to Jesus. Now, why are there four different accounts? Wouldn't one be enough? Well, the diversity is on purpose. Each of the four gospel authors has shaped and arranged their stories about Jesus differently, so they can emphasize different things about him. Matthew presents Jesus as a greater Moses, and so he's grouped Jesus' teachings into five large blocks, just like the five books of the Torah. Luke highlights how Jesus is God's royal servant from the book of Isaiah, who brings God's light to the nations. Mark presents Jesus as a new start for humanity, bringing the mystery of God's new creation crashing into the present. And John focuses on Jesus' claim to be Yahweh, the God of Israel, become human, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Those are really different from each other, but they all tell the same basic story. A man from the region of Galilee teaching this good news but who's ultimately crucified as a criminal. Yes, all four books of the gospel are showing how the arrival of God's kingdom through Jesus led him up to the cross, where he was enthroned as the king of God's new world. He's given a robe, a crown, and a scepter. Right. And as Jesus suffers the consequences of humanity's rebellion, he's showing that the power of God's kingdom comes through his love and self-sacrifice. And when he's raised from the dead, we're watching the dawn of the new creation. So the gospel authors don't just want their readers to know about the good news of God's kingdom. They want them to become a part of it. 
Yes, the gospel is designed to persuade us to trust and follow Jesus so that we can participate in the new creation that he began. Pretty interesting, huh? So they say that you should always try hard to make a good first impression because first impressions are often hard to undo. And when I was in first grade, I got a Bible um, in the Sunday school that I attended. And it looked exactly like the one uh, that is up on the screen. It pictured Jesus in this pastoral setting um, he was sitting under a, a leafy tree. He had children scattered all about his feet. And then he had his right hand hovering over a child who was standing next to him, almost as if he was about to pat him on the head. Now, there's nothing particularly wrong about that image. Um, but if that's the only image that you're exposed to um, about Jesus then you might not be getting the full picture of who Jesus is. And so last week, Pastor Chris taught us that Jesus showed both compassion and anger. And um, today, I would like to explore with you um, that theme a little bit further. Um, today, we're going to talk about what Jesus loves and what he doesn't. Um, our goal really is, is simply to take this time um, to get to know him a little bit better. And along the way, maybe some of those first impressions that you've had of Jesus might get a little bit uh, realigned. So uh, we'll be, begin with the, the big idea. Today, the big idea is this. Jesus delights in liberating the humble seeker, but he distresses over the hardened pretender. You know, there were times when people's faith made Jesus glad, and then there were other times when people's lack of faith made Jesus sad. And then there was a certain type of person whose actions made him downright mad. And we're going to look at four groups today that we find in the book of Mark. By the way, um, did anybody take up the challenge from last week to read through the entire book of Mark in one sitting? Anybody? 16 chapters? It's something that I typically, I don't read the Bible that way. Uh, I typically just focus on a chapter at a time. But it was really a good exercise to do. It really um, brings together things that um, you wouldn't otherwise pick up. So uh, if you did it, great. If you haven't done it yet, the good news is you still have this week to do it. So I would challenge you to read through that, that gospel in one sitting. So we're going to look at these four groups. Um, we find these four groups all in the first six chapters of the book of Mark. Uh, the first group is the disciples, and then we're going to look at the crowd and we're going to look at the religious leaders, and finally we're going to look at Jesus' hometown people. So let's begin with the disciples. It says in Mark chapter 1, One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew 
throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. And Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And it says they left their nets at once and followed him. Now notice that these brothers fished for a living. So this was their job, it was their career, it was their livelihood. And Jesus was asking them to follow him, and in doing that, they would have to walk away from that. So that was a a rather large ask, if you will. The invitation was, come follow me. And they must have had some inkling that this was going to be about um, the purpose of changing people's lives. Because they, they, it says they followed him immediately, without delay, even though they were leaving behind this well-established career they had. And I think that they, they rose up to the, to the challenge to, to, to go in this new direction uh, because it was really giving them something that they felt was going to matter. It was going to matter more than the routine of their life to that point. So keeping going in that passage, then we read this. A little farther up the shore, right, same Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. And he called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. So these brothers were also fishermen, and they also responded with faith immediately when Jesus called them to a new life, to a new vocation, if you will. Now, for James and John, they were also leaving their profession, but in addition to that, they were leaving their family behind. They were leaving their father. They literally left him sitting in the boat and walked away. Um, So that was not an easy decision for them, I'm sure, and I'm sure they also got a pretty strong blowback Uh, from their family for doing that. So what characterized these disciples? I think the the word that comes to mind is action, right? Uh, Their their faith in Jesus and where he would lead them was followed up with decisive action. It wasn't just like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Maybe, Maybe someday, you know, we'll take you up on that. No, they actually put actions to their beliefs. Think about it. They were leaving behind a career. They were leaving behind job security, a steady income probably. And they were leaving their families behind too in this decision. But they were engaging in a new fellowship, in an adventure, and in a mission for the hearts and souls of men and women. And from that moment, they were all in. And I think that their faith made Jesus glad. So next up, we want to look at the crowds that were following Jesus during this time. And we pick it up in the very next verse in chapter 1. It says, They, this group of disciples that had started to follow Jesus, and Jesus went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went to the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And then it says, uh, suddenly 
a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But it says, Jesus reprimanded him, Be quiet and come out of him, he ordered. And at that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. And it says, amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had just happened. What sort of teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It has such authority. Even evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout that region, throughout the entire region of Galilee. So in today's vernacular, we would say that this story went viral, even before the advent of social media. And no wonder. I mean, it was, it was incredible if you were actually there and had just witnessed what Jesus had done. So what characterizes this crowd? Well, I think in a word, amazement, right? They were amazed. They were, it says, the, used the word gripped. They were gripped by Jesus' personality, by his teaching, and by his miracles. But I think they were only gripped to the point that it was entertaining. Unfortunately, for many of these people, that's where it started and that's where it ended. You know, they followed this movement as long as it was convenient and as long as it didn't ask them uh, for anything that was too hard. And, you know, when we, when we bring in some of these other gospel accounts, in John it actually says that as Jesus' teaching became more personally challenging, it says many of his disciples turned away and deserted him at that point. These were fair-weather friends, but they were really not true disciples. So when the going got tough, they basically checked out. Well, I think that there's many people today who attend church that are typical of this crowd. They're a fan of Jesus, but they're not a true follower of Jesus, at least not yet. You see, the jury was still out on these people and on their faith response. So that brings us to a third group of people, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Now, in this passage that we're going to look at, it simply refers to them as his enemies. In other places, it identifies them as the scribes or the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. But who were they really? Well, they were overzealous religious experts that prided themselves on being better than the people that they were called on to lead and to serve. So let's read a little bit about this interaction. So pick up the story in Mark chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Jesus went into the synagogue again. Now that was his, his habit. He'd go to these towns and he'd go to the synagogue and he, he, would, he would preach. And he noticed a man with a deformed hand. Now since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand... They planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. So you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. It was a day of rest. But watch what Jesus does next. And oh, by the way, these people, 
that were going to do this, they were really weasels. They really were. But notice how Jesus doesn't shrink away from their challenge here. Just watch. And, and, and when you read Scripture, I really want to encourage you to like look for this kind of thing. Don't just read it like a textbook and like it's flat. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And that's what we want to kind of pull out, the richness of this story. So check this out. Jesus says to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand here in front of everyone. Right? I'm going to... We're going to make an example right here out of this situation. Then he turns to his critics, these self-righteous teachers, and he asks them, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? See, he took their argument to like this absurd extreme, right? They were going to say, you can't do even a good thing on the Sabbath, because we're going to call that work. So he challenges them. And then he says, is this a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. And I like the fact that he actually put them on the spot. They couldn't answer him. And he's really just pouring it on here. I mean, this is dripping with sarcasm, what Jesus is saying to these people. It's a little bit of a different picture than Jesus patting the little child on the head at this point. Verse 5 says, He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hearts. Then he said to the man, Hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. Now there are many times in the Bible when Jesus healed somebody and he touched them. He wanted to, to demonstrate that this was actually his healing of that person. But in this case, he doesn't do that. He just tells the man, hold out your hand. So this man holds it out, and lo and behold, it's, he's healed. You see, he didn't do anything that the Pharisees could accuse him of. He just told the man to put out his hand. He didn't demonstratively like, heal the guy. So they couldn't construe it as work. So, so he foiled even their um, intentions, even though they were bad. And he healed the man anyway. So let's think about these religious leaders. What were, what were they characterized by? Well, I think the word that comes to mind is condemnation. You know, they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus because they were legalists. It was always their first instinct to condemn, to pick apart somebody else's faults while turning a blind eye to their own. See, they tended to focus on these trivial physical customs that they had, they had built up around their religion. And they focused on those to the exclusion of the more weighty matters of actually keeping the law that was spiritual. What was Jesus' attitude toward these people? Total confrontation. Jesus sets up the confrontation by bringing the man up front. He leaves them speechless with the questions that he asks them. And then he exasperates them by healing the man without technically working. So know this. If you think that you're somebody because of what you do or what you know, 
If you look down on others with a self-righteous attitude, Jesus declares you his enemies, and he will oppose you, just like he did these religious leaders. So now the final group, we're moving right along here, um, and I know we're reading a lot of scripture, um, but I think it's important to kind of be able to, to see how these, these things are, are pulled out. So the last group that we want to look at uh, is Jesus' own hometown. Pick up the story in Mark chapter 6. It says, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth. That was his hometown. And the next Sabbath, again, that's his custom. Every Sabbath he gets, goes to the synagogue and starts teaching. He began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And they asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? So it seems like it's going pretty well. Remember, these are people that knew him from before. They knew him before he had started his public ministry. To this point, it looks like everything's going smoothly, but we'll see in the next verse, it all goes south pretty quickly. It says in verse 3, Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter. He's the, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And his sisters, they live right here among us. And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Notice how they dismissed Jesus. First they said, he's just a carpenter. He's just an ordinary guy. He's like a, a blue-collar worker, right? How could this guy, he's not a doctor, he's not a lawyer, he's nobody that important. How could he be so great? And then there's no mention of his father, Joseph. Notice it says that he's the son of Mary. Now, a lot of people feel that Joseph died earlier in Jesus' life, and that may be why he wasn't mentioned here. But even if Joseph had died, the Jewish custom of the day would have been to call Jesus the son of Joseph, not the son of his mother. The feeling here is that this probably, too, was a bit of a put-down. It's kind of like Jesus calling Jesus a mama's boy. Right? He's the, he's the son of Mary. He, he, you know, he, he's not a real man. And yes, by the way, the Bible does teach that Jesus had brothers and sisters in this passage. Um, they were born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus' miraculous birth. So they were Mary and Joseph's biological children. Now, you, you may have heard um, the idea that Mary was forever a virgin, but this passage doesn't teach that. It, 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 it teaches that he had actual brothers, half-brothers, that is, and sisters. But, you know, he was so familiar to them that they just couldn't process what he was saying. And it says, Then Jesus told them this, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And we kind of know this to be true, right? Like you, you get this hometown kid and you've watched him grow up, a boy or a girl, and then they start to do something and step out and want to be something. Um, and it's kind of like, uh, how could they do that? They're just, you know, they're just ordinary town folk. So because of their unbelief, 
It says, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. So what characterizes Jesus' hometown, friends and family? I think the word for this is contempt. Because that's what familiarity breeds, right? They couldn't explain Jesus. He had grown up among them. And they became offended by him. So maybe you grew up with stories about Jesus as well. And in that way, he's familiar to you. But now, now that you're all grown up, you know, he's become more of a myth or kind of a fairy tale character. So you minimize and dismiss him in the same way that these people did. There are a lot of people who are offended by Jesus' message. They're offended when they're told that they need a Savior, that they can't come to God um, on their own. They're not good enough. Now, Jesus couldn't do many miracles, it says, in this place. And it's not because Jesus doesn't have the power to do miracles anytime and anywhere. But Jesus' person, uh, his purpose is to perform miracles in the presence of faith. And that's what these people didn't have. So I think that their faith, their faith response, or their lack of it, I think it made Jesus sad. So, two questions for this morning. Who does Jesus love, and what does Jesus love? Who does Jesus love? Well, in terms of people, Jesus loves everyone in the sense that he died for everyone so that everyone could have an opportunity to repent and be saved. But faith has to be exercised for that to happen. See, being a fan like the crowd is not enough. We've seen today in the book of, the Mark, in the book of Mark these four different responses to Jesus and his message. But only one of them, the, those first disciples, demonstrated true faith that was borne out by action. So that's who Jesus loves. However, the other question, what Jesus loves, is actually a different question. And I would submit to you that what Jesus loves is to do the mission of the Father that sent him. And so here, we actually want to go back to that story of Nazareth, and we want to look at one of the other Gospels that tells it from a different perspective, just like we were talking about in, in the video. We're going to look at the book of Luke. It recalls this exact same event, but it tells a different part of the story that Mark leaves out. So in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, listen to this. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. So far, everything seems to be the same. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up 
the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after that, it says that he said to the crowd, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, that is Jesus' mission right there in a nutshell. And that is what he loves. And I think that is what put the hometown people over the edge, so to speak. See, we know Jesus spoke and taught with authority. He claimed to be the Savior of the world. And even in another place in the Gospels, he actually claimed to be the only way to the Father. And many people find that offensive and dismiss him because of it. So last week, our word for the, for the day was rest. And this week, our word is follow. Our focus has been on following Jesus. And what does that actually mean? So we said that Jesus loves the mission that the Father gave him. So I want to ask you some questions about how you interact with his mission. Have you experienced heartbreak in your life? I mean, almost all of us would have to say yes to that. And at some point, if you haven't, you will. Well, this morning, Jesus desires to heal your woundedness and to give you a new heart. I wonder if you're captive this morning to your hurts and your hang-ups and your habits. This morning, Jesus delights in setting you free. Maybe you're wandering through life without a purpose and direction. This morning, Jesus wants to set you free so that you can go and liberate others. That's his mission, and he's also inviting you to join him on it. It's one of the most satisfying things that you could possibly do with your life. You see, this mission that he's inviting you on started 2,000 years ago when he called a bunch of fishermen, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, to follow him. And they left their nets and they followed him. But that mission continues to this day. So I'm wondering this morning if you have heard him speaking to you personally, saying, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men and women. Let's pray. Jesus, you have truly given your whole life so that our lives could be made new, so that we could experience that rest that we talked about last week, and so that we could follow you into a great adventure that you're leading, that you love to do, which is giving people their hearts back, setting them free from all the things that have them in slavery. And then being able to share that message with other people and watch it happen in other lives. God, you are calling each one of us today to that grand mission. Each one of us has to answer that question for ourselves. Will we follow Jesus? 
And what does that mean in my life today? To be a true follower of Jesus, not just a fan. God, I pray that you would help us to see you clearly this morning in a way maybe that we haven't seen you before. And that we will open our hearts and our, and our arms to you and embrace you and embrace your mission. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.